Hey everyone, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Liam McCollum Show. This interview will definitely be the longest that I've had so far, but I guess since it's pretty early, it's okay to experiment. You should let me know what you think about longer interviews versus shorter interviews. I might actually just end up doing a mix of short and long interviews in the future, but who knows. Looks like you'll have some time to actually listen to it though, so you have no excuse. Um, I'll probably be releasing this on my birthday actually, and according to the governor's orders, I will have to shelter in place. So you guys should sit back and listen to this interview. I think it's fairly interesting. The goal has basically been to bring on as many different perspectives or just, I guess not different perspectives because uh, the people I've interviewed have been mainly from the same perspective, but I'd like to diversify a little more. But basically to bring on perspectives that people don't hear from very often. And today I'm gonna bring on Jacob Hornberger. He is one of the candidates for the Libertarian Party presidential race. He has some pretty interesting positions, especially in regards to what we're going through right now. Um, he'd say that the current crisis that we're seeing is actually a result of policy that we've, we've had for quite a while. Failure from the CDC, failure from the FDA, failure of monetary policy, which I'm very concerned about. Uh, he's the only candidate that I've seen that has the same exact monetary policy that I prefer. In fact, he's probably the only candidate that talks about monetary policy. There are some other positions that he has that are more radical, but I think that radicalism actually attracts people, especially when the current system leads to things like this, to poverty, when it leads to people working paycheck to paycheck. And now um, a case where the government basically fails to counter this pandemic and also in doing so has record unemployment so or potentially has record unemployment so we'll see how how this plays out but i do believe that some form of systemic change will have to happen to fix what we're going through right now um and jacob poses one of those solutions so Please let me know what you think about this interview. Um, subscribe if you haven't yet. I'm on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Apple Music. I'm trying to get on Spotify. Let me know what you think. Hey, Jacob. How you doing? Hey, Liam. Fine, thank you. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's kind of a great time to actually talk about libertarian principles and a different approach to everything that's going on. But first off, will you, will you give a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah, I'm. Uh, my regular job is the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation, which is a nonprofit educational foundation that advances the principled case for libertarianism. I've been doing that for 30 years. Before that, I was a lawyer in Texas. I practiced law as a trial attorney for 12 years. I grew up in a, on a farm on the Rio Grande in a outside a little town called Laredo, Texas, and and. Uh, which is on the southern border of the United States. I worked two years at the Foundation for Economic Education in New York. And most recently, I'm a candidate for the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. Great. Well, I want to start getting into your positions and how you would um, 
how would how you would approach most situations because they're mu- they're much different than the mainstream. Um, now regarding the coronavirus and the the current approach, they they passed a two point two trillion stimulus package through the Senate early this morning. What what are your positions on that? It's just legalized stealing. Right. It's, it's socialism for the rich, uh, for the big corporations. Um, this uh, this whenever you have a crisis like this, you have a great opportunity to help out the privileged, the the elite, and the big corporations, the big businesses, and because everybody's scared and they'll go along with anything, even though this ridiculous notion that government spending. Uh, provide the stimulus, especially when the government's broke and doesn't have any money. And of course, the people that are going to benefit from this are the political elite, the the ones that have the big lobbyists, uh, the the big influence in Washington. And so not surprisingly, the, the ones that are getting the lion's share of this money are the big businesses, the big corporations, the ones that have ties in with people of Congress and, and people that have ties to, to President Trump. And then as a sedative, uh, palliative, they, they give a little $1,800 check to, to everybody else so they'll keep their mouth shut and they'll be happy. Uh, but in the meantime, they're going to be plundering and looting uh, the, the poor and the middle class uh, for the next umpteen years to pay off this massive debt that they're going to have to incur to do this. Right. And it, I find it pretty interesting because you're a libertarian and a lot of people conflate kind of libertarians with, oh, they um in capitalism with the idea that oh well they support big businesses or at least that's that's kind of the um straw man that they they pose so i find it interesting that you're actually saying that this bill benefits big business a lot of people would think that you wouldn't be you would actually like that so can you kind of speak on how your idea of capitalism isn't what's going on right now yeah, uh, the libertarian principle of, of capitalism or a free market economy is one in which there is a separation of economy and the state. Uh, that is, when we use the term free market, that means a, a market that is entirely free of government interference, control, or regulation. Uh, unfortunately, as a result of what happened in the 1930s, there's this corrupted version of capitalism and and the free market that the left has been indoctrinated with, well, every non-libertarian has been indoctrinated with, that when Roosevelt uh, came into office, he adopted a what's called a managed economy, a centrally managed economy, government-managed economy, and a massive welfare state, which is a system where the government takes money from people to whom it belongs and gives it to people to whom it does not belong. And so... What ended up happening is they indoctrinated people into into thinking that that system of central planning and welfare state redistribution was a free market, that Roosevelt was saving America's free enterprise system. Well, we libertarians know that's just a lie. It's just false indoctrination. You know, a, a genuine free market system is one in which there is no government regulation, no central planning where everybody plans his own economic activities. He keeps everything he earns. Charity is 100% voluntary. You have a limited government republic with a basic military force. The government's powers are very few, and they're they're, um, very limited in nature. So our 
conception of what's going on today is just what's been going on for the last 90 years. Government is used as a means by, is a fiction. This is a, the French free market legislator, Frederick Bastiat. This was his term. Government the, or the state is a great fiction by which everyone is trying to live at the expense of everyone else. So here you have the big corporations that are running into financial difficulties. I mean, that ha happens in life. You, you know, nobody guarantees that markets are going to go in your favor or that your business is going to succeed. But they can't handle that. They can't handle a genuine free market, which entails both the risk of succeeding and the risk of failing. And now that they're losing a lot of money because of this crisis, they run to their daddy, to, to, to the paternalistic state, and say, plunder and loot everybody in this society to keep us going so that we don't have to declare bankruptcy or we don't have to lose money. And that's what the state is now doing. It's just plundering and looting the poor, the middle class, in order to take money from them and transfer it to these great big corporations. That is totally contrary to what we libertarians call capitalism in a free market. Right. I find it pretty interesting because for how the government seems to be against monopoly, it it establishes monopolies through regulation, through inflation, through bailouts and stuff like that. My my family's actually in the trucking industry and there was there was this regulation a little bit ago through the um, Department of Trans Transportation where they needed to start using computer logs and these computer logs basically made all these small trucking industries suffer and these monopolies benefited from it because they could afford it. I, I, I find it really interesting that it what, what do they call it? It's like the law of unintended consequences or something like that. Right and they call it you know crony capitalism that, that you're absolutely right that what happens is is that the, the people on the left, the interventionists, the regulators, the central planners, they call for these regulatory commissions, you know, with the idea of protecting the consumers and so forth. Well, what always ends up happening is that the big businesses get their people on those regulatory commissions. <laughs> and then they, they use them to their benefit. As, as you point out, they enact even more regulations that they can afford with the objective of sending out of business the people that cannot afford them or, or preclude competitors from coming into the market. So to establish their monopoly position or, or a position where there's only a few competitors, which drives prices up. But it's, it, the thing to keep in mind is it's all just one great big racket. I mean, this bailout stimulus is just a racket of thieves, uh, thieves and robbers that are out there looting and plundering people. And they're using this crisis and they're, they're giving everybody their little $1,800 check that <laughs> says, you know, um, shut up and go home. Right. So would you support um, would you support a bigger check for the American citizens? Of course not. Okay. I, don't, I don't support a check for anybody. Um, that that is not the purpose of government. Government is, it, from a libertarian standpoint, government should not be our daddy, and we should not be adult children, where we run to our daddy and say, "Daddy, daddy, I'm in trouble. Please help me out." And and the daddy says, "Well, okay, here's ten dollars, son." Uh, be, be sure to spend it wisely and then come back in another week. I mean, that's, that's not the purpose of government. That right. The thing to keep in mind is that we libertarians, sometimes I'm asked that, okay, what would you libertarians do to solve this coronavirus crisis? If you don't believe in a stimulus bill or a bailout bill or a Federal Reserve massive inflationary policy, how, how would you resolve this crisis? 
Well, libertarianism has never been a philosophy that, that purports to make this system work. You know, I've, I've argued for my entire 30 years at the Future of Freedom Foundation that this is an inherently defective system. You've got a centrally planned economy with massive confiscatory redistribution of wealth, complements of the Internal Revenue Service. You've got a centrally planned healthcare system, and, and we see the results of that. And we've got a centrally plan, planned monetary system. These are inherently defective systems. This is what I have told people for decades. You cannot make them work. And no matter what you do, no matter what reform you come up with, Obamacare, Medicare for all, health savings accounts, it's not going to work. So libertarianism stands for not for trying to make something that cannot work work. We stand for an entirely different framework, a, a different system where there is a separation of economy and the state. People keep everything they earn. They decide what to do with it. Charity is 100 percent voluntary, no mandatory charity at all including Social Security and Medicare and farm subsidies and corporate bailouts and stimulus plans and the like, a total free market healthcare system, which would mean you would no, no longer have shortages of testing kits and ventilators and masks and so forth, and then a free market in monetary policy where you don't have any more monetary chaos, inflation, devaluation of the currency, get rid of the Federal Reserve, and have a total free market monetary system. If we had had those in place 10 years ago, and then we were faced with this crisis, everything would be different and everything would be more positive. Um, I do kind of want to talk about each of those instances that you mentioned there. There's some of them that really stuck out to me, specifically regarding the healthcare system. And um, we're, we're, we're told we have to stay inside to flatten the curve so that we can increase capacity for like these healthcare systems. But I've, do you think in the current system that we have that is even possible because the way the way that I I look at it is that there isn't even a price system or an effective price system system for health the healthcare industry to see how much capacity they need is that is that an accurate assessment absolutely I mean, what, what you have here is what Ludwig von Mises, the, the famous um, libertarian Austrian economist, who libertarians consider the greatest economist who's ever lived. And Mises called the results of this kind of system, a system based on central planning, planned chaos. And what better term to describe what's going on than, than planned chaos? You, you know, if you look, for example, at South Korea, you get a sense of how things, how different things could have been if everybody were tested. I mean, if, there, if testing was a dime a dozen where you could go three blocks away and get tested, uh, that then you'd know who has the virus. He could self-isolate. You keep everybody else who's not infected working, and you could even have multiple tests. But these are the kind of things that a market economy would immediately accommodate because the free market produces the best of everything. The, the, the problem is Americans have lost their faith in free markets and they, they've placed their faith in central planning in, in the government. I mean, just the other day I had somebody say, well, what's your solution to all this? I said, separate healthcare in the state. And they go, oh, that's ridiculous. That's just outrageous. We need the government to do this. And what I find so fascinating is despite the chaos and the high death toll, they keep putting their faith in the government and, and, this, and its central planning system. So, you know, how do you, how do you resolve these? And, and notice that, that, they, that when their system isn't working, 
they start lashing out with these tyrannical controls, uh, you know, lockdowns and quarantine zones and troops on the streets and stuff. I mean, it's just it's just the natural consequence of a central planning system. Right. It doesn't work. And so their response to it not working is let's use force. Mm. It's a dysfunctional system. Yeah, I've been I've been reading a lot about the FDA and CDC restrictions on masks and stuff like that. Are you are you familiar with any of the regulations that have slowed the process? Uh, just from what I've read in the paper mm-hmm. that uh, they wouldn't let the private sector produce them. And then um, if they start to, they shut them down. I mean, this is classic central planning that, that, that they the the central planner feels threatened when the private sector is going out and doing something without permission, without consent, you know, they want, they want people to come and ask them for, for permission before they do things. Mm -hmm. So you lose the entire dynamism of the, of the free market with entrepreneurs that don't have, now now notice the system I'm talking about, a, a genuine free market system. Government has no role at all. Okay. It's just a total free market system. So then the coronavirus hits, immediately the entire healthcare system, I mean, this is a healthcare problem. This is the greatest threat to our health and and our lifetime. And they would immediately mobilize. You have entrepreneurs coming in here. Let's say there's a scarcity of masks. Entrepreneurs would immediately come in into the market. They'd see the price of masks going up. They'd start to produce quickly. They wouldn't have to check with anybody with permission. Uh, Then as the supply increases, the money, the, the prices start coming down. That's how a market works. They use the intricacy of the private system to allocate resources. What you have today is, oh, uh, FDA, would you let me do this? Well, we'll have to think about that. We're going to have to have a meeting, you know, classic committee type mindset. And you see it in the testing kits, too, that, you know, they, they wanted to produce testing kits and the Centers for Disease Control says, well, no, that's our job. And they go out and they they produce a few and they send them out and they turned out they were defective, not surprisingly. And so it's just chaos. It's like you know, running running the healthcare system like the post office. And why people continue to put their faith in this system, it's absolutely boggles my mind. Right. And it's actually pretty interesting. I I was reading that the first case or the first test kit that they they had in Washington was it actually broke. FDA regulations to test the first um, person with coronavirus in Washington. Yeah, it's it's just it's crazy, but but it's actually interesting. In, um, in Billings, where I'm from, Billings, Montana, there's someone in the Billings Clinic who started developing 3D printed masks because of there's there's not enough supply here, and he's starting to give them out for free, um, and that's just the type of innovation that we see in people. And there's also this company, Everlywell, who's starting to send out um, home testing kits to people. But it had to go through this approval process through the FDA, and it delayed it. So it's it's quite interesting to see that happen. Well, see it with the ventilators, too. You know, they, that they need these ventilators really bad, and so that they, they find, I don't know, three or 4,000 and send them to New York, and Governor Cuomo says... That's peanuts. I need thirty thousand. <laughs> like he's not happy at all. Right. And this, but this is, I mean, this is like living in the Soviet Union. 
This is exactly what people went through in the centrally, centrally planned healthcare and economy and monetary system of the Soviet Union. Mm. Shortages, chaos, orders, commands, tyranny. Um, it, it's really, it, it's a fascinating thing just to watch. Right. Now there's, there's one more issue that stuck out when you were listing them off that we're seeing right now. It, it's monetary policy. You were, you were mentioning that the middle class is basically, I mean, they are being plundered right now. Um, and if a lot of people aren't convinced that, you know, free markets um, will free up everything and they'll be better, I think, I think if they understood what was happening with our monetary policy, they would be a little more convinced. So can you, can you kind of break down what's happening with the Federal Reserve right now? It's, it's interesting because a lot of people are tying the current economic crisis with the coronavirus, but no one, not even these reporters are asking why we were cutting interest rates last summer if, if they're directly tied. So can you kind of go into that? Yeah, I mean, it's important to keep in mind that, that before this corona crisis, we were already experiencing crises. Mm-hmm. I mean, wherever you see a government program, there's a crisis. Look at immigration. I mean, this is a massive government program, again, of central planning. You've got a government board planning uh, the number of immigrants, quotas from countries, uh, credentials, all this. Well, duh, now you've got this massive crisis for decades. Well, that's what central planning does. Well, if you go back to, to, the, to the original idea of America, uh, now, we know there were some bad founding principles of America, you know, the, the slavery and so forth. But there were some good founding principles. And one of those was that you keep everything you earn, you decide what to do with it. And that was our system for more than 100 years, uh, that, that um, charity was entirely 100% voluntary. You managed your own life and your own resources. And there was no foreign interventions, foreign, uh, foreign aid, coups, torture, assassinations, and so forth. Um, and there, there were no drug laws. There was open immigration. There was no Federal Reserve. For more than 100 years, there was no Federal Reserve. The, the, the official money was gold coins and silver coins. Well, all of this came together to, to produce the most prosperous nation in history. Uh, it, it was incredible. I mean, by the late 1800s and early 1900s, the standard of living of the American people was infinitely higher than anybody everywhere, anywhere in the world and in history because Americans had either intentionally, knowingly, or inadvertently discovered the causes of high standards of living, including for the poor. Uh, so that all changes, though. You, you end up getting a, um, into the 20th century, you get a centrally planned economy. You get an income tax, the Internal Revenue Service. You get a centrally managed healthcare system. You get a socialist system in terms of confiscatory confiscation of wealth from people to whom it belongs to give it to people it does not belong under the idea of compassion a care uh the uh, the idea of mandatory charity which of course isn't charity at all it's ridiculous but that's what social security is and medicare and farm subsidies and bailouts and all this uh, aid to, to dictators and so forth and at the same time you get the federal reserve which is a centrally managed monetary system well everything changes then. Now you start having crises. You have economic crises uh, because the Federal Reserve is, well, because the government is spending ever increasing amounts of money on on welfare statism, on warfare statism, on just the, the, the whole gamut of things that the federal government does. From the 30s on up, it's just expanding. 
Well, it needs money to do that. The only place government can get its money is from the citizenry. Government doesn't produce wealth like IBM or, or Microsoft. They, the only place they get their money is with taxes. So, okay, they're taxing people and taxing people and raising taxes and raising taxes. The income tax is going up, up, up because their expenses are getting bigger and bigger. They got to wage the Korean War and the Vietnam War and so forth. So it gets to a point where, where we are before the coronavirus scandal or crisis that people don't have any savings. So, I mean, the young people don't have savings. They don't have a nest egg. Uh, they can't make ends meet. They live paycheck to paycheck. How many people live like that in America? Why? Because the government's been taking such a large amount of money. Okay, well, when the government gets to a certain point of taxation, it keeps spending. Okay, how does it do that, though, without tax? Now, it knows that if it keeps taxing people, people are going to get upset. I mean, throughout history, there have been tax revolts. When people just get angry over the amount of money the government's taking from them, that's where the Federal Reserve comes in. So the federal, so they, they start borrowing the money, government officials do, they start borrowing the money to finance their expenditures. So if they're, if they're spending a trillion dollars and they're bringing in a trillion and they want to spend another uh, 500 billion, half a trillion, they just go out in, into the uh, capital markets and borrow it. Well, now they're incurring debt. And that debt starts getting so high over a period of time that now the creditors want their money. And so how, how are you going to pay them back? Well, you got to tax people. Well, that's what they were trying to avoid in the first place. That's where the Federal Reserve comes in. It starts printing the money to pay off this debt and ever-increasing amounts of money. So they, they, they made it illegal to owe gold, gold coins. This was in the 30s, even though that had been the official money established by the Constitution and it had been the official money of the American people for more than 100 years. They, they gradually drove out silver from circulation because Gresham's law and economics, bad money will drive out good money. And so in the process, they're plundering and looting poor people, people on fixed incomes, because the, the value of money is dropping uh, with this overinflation of the money supply. And they blame it on greedy profiteers and big oil and gas station attendants and so forth. Because nobody understands that it's the Federal Reserve, the government that's doing this. So what you have, so you, okay, now if, the third part of this thing is the healthcare system. We all know there was a healthcare crisis before the coronavirus. I mean, that was what Obamacare was all about. And, and so, you know, I kept arguing and I've argued for 30 years that the root of this crisis is Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, we had the finest healthcare system in history before these two programs. It was a free market healthcare system. Prices were low and stable. Nobody need nobody had medical insurance. Nobody needed medical insurance because prices were like going to the grocery store. <laughs> and doctors loved what they did in life. Doctors provided free healthcare to the people. They were poor. They were making a lot of money anyway uh, because taxes were low. So all of a sudden, Medicare and Medicaid coming on. That's the root of the, the crisis. That's that's it. Now there's also you know occupational licensure to a certain extent, but. But these two programs destroyed everything. So what do they do when the crisis comes? They don't repeal the programs, which is what they should do. It's like a cancerous tumor. You get rid of it if you can. Uh, they just double down and get Obamacare. And then we all, I mean, I knew Obamacare wasn't going to fix the system. It's an inherently defective system. So then, oh, now we need Medicare for all because free enterprise is supposedly failed. 
Well, now with this corona crisis, what's, what's fascinating is you have a perfect storm of these three dysfunctional systems. You've got a d dysfunctional economic system where people don't have any savings to get them through this thing. Uh, you've got a dysfunctional healthcare system that is, we can see what's happening with that. And then we've got a dysfunctional monetary system and all that they're doing, Liam, is doubling down. And this, this is what's so fascinating is that they're not even considering libertarianism in the remotest way. They are just doubling down. And I will guarantee you, this is not going to end nicely. Right. They, they just announced that they're going, is it quantitative easing unlimited? They're just going to print as much money as they'd like? That's exactly it. That's, that's what they've essentially said, is that the floodgates are open. We will... I mean, they call it quantitative easing, and, it, and, and it's more complicated than just printing paper money. That's the way they used to do it. Now they do it with computers and expansion of credit and so forth. But as a practical matter, that's what they're doing. That's the simplest way to understand it. They're, they're printing new paper money mm. uh, that, that is irredeemable. Uh, it promises to pay nothing. They are flooding the market with newly printed money, and they plan on paying off this debt this $2 trillion of additional debt. Now, keep in mind, we had a debt crisis, too, before the coronavirus. We, we had $23 trillion in debt. A big spender, Trump, who came into office promising to pay off the debt, you know, during his term in office, or his eight-year term, uh, that he turned out to be as big a spender as Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and he's no different from Joe Biden. He, these are birds of a feather, you know, the peas in a pod. Right. There's no difference between them. So Trump's was already before the coronavirus spending one trillion dollars more than what he was bringing in, and that's of course partly because he's kept all the troops in the Middle East and Afghanistan that he promised when he was running for office to bring home. Now this crisis hits. He, the big spender, the big central planner, Donald Trump, is adding another two trillion dollars and working with the Democrats to do it to the national debt this there's a reason why there's a debt ceiling because too much debt is a very dangerous thing as the people of greece that went into bankruptcy because of too much spending in debt and that's where these people are leading us both democrats and republicans donald trump and joe biden they're all on the same page and this is a very bad direction but at least people have a choice you know, if people want this this kind of way of life, man, vote for either Trump or, or Biden. It doesn't matter. It, it it's the same thing. You you want a different direction? Join up with us libertarians. Join up with me because now we're talking about an entirely different framework, a different paradigm that leads to peace and prosperity and health and harmony and morality. Mm. Do you think that you can unite American citizens that come from both aisles? Absolutely not. I mean, the, the, these people stand against everything we libertarians stand for, uh, both Democrats and Republicans. There's no uniting there. They are jointly responsible for the destruction of liberty and prosperity and health and morality in our country and peace. They're, they're jointly responsible for what's going on in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, uh, Syria, uh, Korea, Iran. They, they both support this, this paradigm of interventionism. They both support the national security state uh, structure of government, which is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. They both support like, what's happening, this $2 trillion stealing program and, and for, for the benefit of the big corporations and the big business. They, they both believe in the socialism of Social Security, Medicare, corporate bailouts, aid to dictators. 
how do you how do you reach common ground with with those with us libertarians when we oppose all of those things? What we libertarians are looking for is that group of people that say, Jacob, you are absolutely right. These people are bad news, both of them. We want to join up with you, and and we want to support you. And then that's what I'm hoping to do is garner a sufficient number of people that sends these Democrats and Republicans a message that their way of life is is finished, that people are sick and tired of it. If you get into office, what would President Jacob Hornberger do to change this system? Is it more pragmatic? What? How do you decrease the debt? What's your approach to that? Okay, uh, number one, pull out all the troops from everywhere where on day one, you just issue an order to the Secretary of Defense, bring them home now. And uh, the Secretary of Defense issues the appropriate order to some general. If that general says no, you fire him and you put in a, a, a colonel. If the colonel says no, you fire him and put in a lieutenant colonel. And you just keep going down the line until you find somebody who's going to follow orders. And the orders are bring them home now. But not just from Afghanistan and the Middle East, from everywhere. You stop this entire system of foreign interventionism. It serves no useful purpose. You know, there's no there's no nation invading the United States today. There's no there's not even the remotest chance that any nation state anywhere in the world's got the money, the the weaponry, the army, the transport ships to to cross the oceans and invade and conquer the United States. Mm-hmm. So there those people over there are not defending our freedom because people over there are not invading the United States to take away our freedom. So you you just put a an immediate stop to all of this foreign empire, foreign military bases, foreign interventionism, including Korea. Uh, Europe, World War II is over, ended a long time ago. Uh, Africa, Latin America, bring them all home. And and here's here's uh, the kicker. You discharge them into the private sector immediately. As they hit the shores, they get their discharge papers. Now, I don't know how much money that would save by taking those people off the federal trough, but I guarantee you it would be a lot. Uh, and then, and, and, and the president can do this. He's commander in chief of the army. He doesn't need congressional consent to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you, um, you can start laying off, uh, soldiers here too, domestically closing military bases. What are those bases for? I mean, you know, like in the olden days, they had forts near cities to protect them from attacks from native Americans. But I mean, like there's no native American attacks anymore. What do you need these forts for? And so you start saving a lot of money there. Uh, now. Here's another thing. Well, you could, you could pardon all the nonviolent federal offenders in the system, which would empty the prisons of a lot of people. That's a lot of money saved right there. Uh, you, you, you can lift all the sanctions and embargoes. That's, that's what I would do immediately. And lift all the sanctions and embargoes against every country. I mean, what, what Donald Trump is doing to the Iranian people is what I call the banality of evil. Mm. It is absolutely horrendous what he's doing. He's targeting the Iranian civilian population with death with these sanctions. I mean, they are suffering big time from this coronavirus. Yeah. And at this point, we are all citizens of the world. We're all in this together. And and for that man to not only not lift the sanctions, but actually impose new sanctions last week, I mean, uh, how can he say that America is a great nation, that he's keeping America great, that he's made America great? There is no way a nation can be great when its government is doing things like this to the Iranian people. We're not at war with Iran. All this empire talk of opponents, rivals, enemies, all this is just that right. empire talk. 
All right, but here's the real thing the president can do. Oh, by the way, all that would save a lot of money, and it would it would generate prosperity, including the trade war that he's uh, that he's done by executive decree against uh, the Chinese. Just end that destructive thing that has bankrupted American farmers immediately. Um, but here's the real kicker that what a president can do. The debt ceiling comes up about every three years. Now, we always know that the Republicans are, are going to make a big fuss about too much debt, and, and they're going to close the government. But we all know they're going to cave. Everybody knows they cave. They always cave when it comes to liberty and sound fiscal policy. And Trump, of course, you know, made a big fuss. We're going to let the government close. But we all knew he was going to cave, and he did cave, and he gives back pay to all the federal workers. And so, I mean, what does he accomplish? Well, with me as a libertarian president, <laughs> there would be no caving. Anybody that knows me knows my background is that there's no caving. We reach that debt limit, and um, everybody says, oh, the sky's going to fall. The sky's going to fall. We have to close the federal government. My position would be, yeah, so be it. That's breaks, <laughs> you know? And, and, you, and you make the government live within its means. That means no more new debt. And they say, oh, we we're going to, the, 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 you know, the sky's going to fall. Yeah, the sky's going to fall. But we're not going to borrow one dime more. And I guarantee you that would save a lot of money. Just start letting all these federal workers go home without pay. A lot would resign and find jobs in the private sector, which would be fantastic. But you don't keep operating without um, with any new debt. So that's some of the things a libertarian president could accomplish here. Mm. Would there be any communication between states in this process, like to, to try to like allow them to take back some power? Well, it, it, it depends on what you're referring to. I mean, you still have your federal system. And uh, so the, the states would, would you know, still have all of their regular powers uh, subject to, of course, to the uh, to the Fourteenth Amendment, which which uh, puts a limit on the exercise of those powers. But yeah, I mean, in a sense, decentralization is always better, but freedom is the best. Mm -hmm. So if you take like education, sometimes people ask me or ask any libertarian candidate, "What's your position on education?" And some libertarian candidates will say, "Oh, get the federal government out of education, abolish the Department of Education." Well, that, that to me is not accomplishing anything, not, and I think constructive. I mean, Ronald Reagan called for the abolition of the Department of Education. Um, I think we need to go further and say the state should not be involved in education at all. The state level, the federal level, abolish public schooling, get rid of the compulsory education laws, get the state out of education, separate the state and education like we separated the state and, and church. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, and on all of your positions on your website, you have – uh, separate blank and state. I, I, I find that really interesting. Well, it, it's, it's trying to get people to think at a higher level. I mean, if, if all that we libertarians succeed in doing is reforming the welfare warfare state serfdom under which we live, we've accomplished nothing, at least with respect to freedom. I mean, imagine if you're a slave in 1850 America and some libertarians come up and say, man, we're making progress. Uh, reforming slavery, we're getting uh, laws passed, uh, providing for fewer lashings and better health care for you and better food. And man, we're really doing some good stuff for you. Well, the slaves might be grateful and they might say thank you, but they would know something important. This is not freedom. And that's the position that I take is that we libertarians are about freedom. We're not about a warmed over serfdom. Mm. 
that you, if you want freedom, you've got to dismantle the structure of slavery and you've got to dismantle the structure of serfdom. And so I want, if I were accorded the honor of this nomination, I would want people to be d discussing and debating two things across America. Number one, what does it really mean to be free? Okay. And number two, what is the legitimate role of government in a free society? So if they're discussing and debating that, then they start discussing things like freedom of religion. What does that mean, freedom of religion? It, it means the state has no role in it, in religion. It means that, that you're not forced to go to church, that you're, you're not, uh, your children are not forced to go to church. Uh, people sometimes raise their children without sending them to church. But we've developed this toleration in, in American society that you raise your children the way you want with respect to religion. Well, the same thing applies like with education, you know, just why shouldn't there be a separation of education and state? Let, let families decide this, the educational vehicle that's best for each of their children. Let the free market do it like we do in religion. Because if people are thinking at a higher level, I think we've got a really good shot, Liam, at achieving a free society. But if we keep them thinking down here on the reform level, like on education, if all we do is get them to think about whether there should be school vouchers or not, that leaves the whole state system intact, what good is that? Mm. That's not freedom. And it's like slavery reform. In order to get people in order to get that free society we want, we've got to get people thinking at this higher level. Now, they may think at that higher level and say, Jacob, I, no, I'm sorry, I've studied libertarianism, I understand it. I, I'm no libertarian, I'm against you. Okay. I mean, fair enough. Nobody's guaranteed success in life, but it's the only chance we have to find enough people that say, we're with you and we're joining your movement, which is happening. I mean, the Libertarian Party has grown like three or 4,000 people just in the last six months. Mm. I mean, so there's more and more people that are discovering libertarianism and saying, hey, that's what I am. Right. I'm joining up with them. That's what we gotta keep doing that. Mm. And what I find interesting, I think even though localism isn't the ideal, it's not the end that libertarians would pursue, I think the idea that, oh, well, if so-and-so doesn't agree with Jacob Hornberger, um, but he agrees with Bernie Sanders, at a local level, you can do that. Um, I, I think that that should appeal to most people because for me, something that really attracted me to the movement was the idea, like, why is it that, like, I, I can't necessarily see the connection between me voting for Jacob Hornberger, someone else voting for Bernie Sanders, but since Jacob Hornberger got less votes, but we all voted and we lived in the same area, I have to be subject to Bernie Sanders' law. Like, I, I, think, I think that a lot of people could at least understand that mere voting, voting in a system or living in a system doesn't mean consent for a particular candidate. I... I think New York shouldn't be subject to the same system as Montana necessarily. And I think that, that that can attract a lot of people. I think your point's very well taken. I think it's an excellent point. You know, when you look at how the United States was structured, it really was a great system. Now, now again, we had some bad parts of it, like slavery, women's rights, uh, tariffs, uh, land grants to the railroads, the the government business partnerships, the crony capitalism. So there was some bad stuff in all there. But in, but if you eliminate those and set those aside, 
the the basic idea was really a beautiful idea. You, you've got this federal system that is divided into a national government or what we call a federal government and then state governments and then local governments and, and local consists of city council jurisdictions and school districts. And the idea was that the federal government, the national government would have very few powers and that most of governmental powers would be managed by the states. And the idea was that, you know, the states would be sort of like little pockets of experimentalism and democracy that if one did something like established a Medicare program and an income tax to finance it and you didn't like it, you could move out and go to another state uh, as compared to one system from the national government that applies to everybody. Um, and then within the national government, you had three branches of government, uh, all of whom were fighting each other, uh, which keeps people safe. I mean, that was what the whole idea was. The government is a great threat and especially the federal government, to our liberty and well-being. That's why we have the Bill of Rights saying, you will not destroy our freedom of religion, our freedom of the press, right to keep and bear arms, due process of law, because they didn't trust the federal government. So that's why they have it broken into three branches so that they would be fighting each other, and when they're fighting each other, they're, they're not destroying our, our liberty. Well, okay, so that, that's, a, I think, a, a very nice system. But it's not a perfect system by any means because you can have a state that's exercising really tyrannical powers. I mean, let's say a, a state passes a law that says everybody's got to take his children not just to school but to church too. And they make the argument that religious education is just as important as regular education and so forth. And so they pass a compulsory attendance law for, for children in churches. Well, I think we'd all agree that's not freedom even though it's, it's being done by the state government, or let, let's even say a local government, it's not freedom. And so that was one of the big imperfections in this system. They, they, they essentially said with the 10th Amendment, the states have the power to do anything. And your one remedy is you get to move out. Well, that's not an easy process for people to just pick up stakes and move. Uh, well, then along comes the 14th Amendment, which I think was just absolutely wonderful. Because what the 14th Amendment said was that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And that was later interpreted to mean the whole Bill of Rights is now applied to the states. So that states cannot do the things that the federal government's prohibited from doing in those first, first eight amendments or so. Mm -hmm. uh, that to me is just fantastic. And that's, for example, uh, like when um, D.C., Washington, D.C. enacted a... Um, gun control law that people that were aggrieved by that sued in federal district court to have it declared unconstitutional. And it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And for, for purposes of the lawsuit, the, the, the district is considered a state. The law applies just across the board to all the states, or the ruling does. And sure enough, the Supreme Court said, yep, unconstitutional. <laughs> well, with the 14th Amendment, that would never would have happened. And so I, I think that was a wonderful, like two bites at the apple for liberty that that, that was given to the American people. Mm. In, in Missoula, where I go to school, um, where they consider Missoula a sanctuary city for refugees. What's your position on that? So you would say that it's it's good. It's just not the ideal. Right. It's a way to maneuver around a very bad system mm. that. Uh, 
which is, you know, what you inevitably have to do when you've got a bad system. You try to accommodate yourself to it. You try to change it, but if you can't change it, uh, it's uh, you, you. You just figure out ways around it. It's like the drug war. You know, libertarians oppose the drug war, but we try to figure out ways to to, to get around it. And uh, like, you know, pardoning people with you know nonviolent drug offenses and so forth, advocating for that sort of thing. So, sanctuary cities is great. It's like a it's like a civil disobedience. It's like jury nullification. Uh, that they're sending a message saying we don't agree with your stupid, corrupt, immoral system and vicious system, and we're we're gonna we're, and this is how we're going to tell you this. It's a powerful message. Well, you know, now the the ideal, of course, is the libertarian one of open borders, free trade, unilateral free trade. Drop all of Tre President Trump's executive decrees that establish trade wars and tariffs, and get rid of all the embargoes and the sanctions and the tariffs and just have free the American people to travel anywhere they want and instead of getting put in jail by for it by the U.S. government and trade with whomever they want. Mm. And then uh, free movements of people, people coming from Mexico, they work, they go back home, they retain their citizenship, they're able to cross borders just like regular human beings instead of drowning in the Rio Grande or in the dying of asphyxiation in the back of an 18-wheeler. Uh, it's really the only solution, and this is what I've emphasized the whole time at the Future of Freedom Foundation. There is one solution to the immigration crisis, and I've seen it firsthand. I, I told you I grew up on the border, on a farm on the Rio Grande. We hired illegal immigrants, and, and I've seen this crisis up front, and I, I keep telling people there is no solution to it except one, and that's free markets. There, there's no other solution. It's to stop trying to find a solution. Uh, and that means open, open immigration, free trade. They're, right. they're, it's the only humane. It's the only solution that's consistent with religious principles, humane principles, moral principles, economic principles, and principles of morality and and just people harmony. Right. And uh, just a, a clarification point. So when when you mention open borders, you would also be in favor of getting rid of the welfare system that attracts immigrants, right? Absolutely, but that would not be a condition. Uh, I'm not, I don't take the position that some people take that, oh, as soon as the welfare state's abolished, then I'll support open borders. <laughs> uh, I, I don't make liberty conditional. Mm. Uh, that liberty, liberty has to be unconditional, and then we work to get rid of the welfare state for everybody, not just immigrants. I mean, for everybody. It's an immoral system, uh, including Social Security and Medicare. These, these are mandatory charity programs. Compliments of the force initiated by the Internal Revenue Service. There is no care or compassion in this in this system, none. And whenever I hear a libertarian say, "Oh, Jacob, you know we got to be caring and compassion and continue these programs," you know, my, I'm looking at them and saying, "Well, really? Explain to me how that care and compassion is demonstrated? Oh, through the Internal Revenue Service, Jacob. This is a very caring and compassionate organization." Yeah, right. Yeah, anybody that's ever gone on the wrong side of the IRS or, or Try to stop paying your taxes and see how caring and compassionate it is. <laughs> so an analogy of this is, is the drug war. Okay, well, I think if there's any ever a litmus test for libertarians, it's the drug war. If you favor the drug war, there's no way you can really call yourself a libertarian. You're just not one. Uh, so if you legalize drugs, which is what I favor and what libertarians favor, 
there's a good chance that some of those drug addicts now out in the open seeking treatment, they don't have to hide their addiction anymore, are going to go on Medicaid uh, to, to assist them to pay the expenses of the therapy and the counseling and so forth. Uh, so should we libertarians support drug laws until Medicaid is abolished? Mm. I don't think so. I mean, I could never find myself supporting any destructive status program like this. So, and the same applies with immigration controls. Mm. You, you work to get rid of the statism and the death and the suffering, and then you work, you work either at the same time or afterward to get rid of the welfare state plundering and looting. Okay. Um, now, can you make the connections between like drug trafficking? Because, well, a lot of people, when they talk about immigration, they are worried about like mafias. They're worried about um, terrorists. Can you make a connection between drug trafficking and the drug war? Yeah. Uh, the, the best thing anybody can ever do to, to see the connection is to watch Netflix's series on Narcos. Uh, it's, it's called Narcos. I think it's a three-segment, three-season series on the rise of the drug cartels in South America. And then the second series they're doing is Narcos Mexico. Uh, and they're, they're getting ready to do a third segment of Narcos Mexico. You, it's best to start with Narcos and then go to Narcos Mexico. Well, what happens is that in a free market, which is what we used to have in drugs here in the United States, there were never any drug laws in the 1800s, and there's always been drugs, of course. In a free market, you've got pharmaceuticals, pharmacies, um, people in a legitimate market selling drugs. Now, you have drug addicts, you have drug users. I mean, a good example is alcohol. I mean, alcohol is a drug. Tobacco is a drug. And so you have a, a legitimate market of people selling alcohol and selling drugs. There's, there's alcoholics. Uh, there's huge alcohol problem. There's tobacco problem. Lots of people dying of cirrhosis. Lots of people dying of lung cancer. Um, but we leave that area legal with respect to to alcohol and tobacco. Now, at one point, though, the alcohol problem got so bad in, in the 1800s that America's decided that, well, let's just make it illegal. And that'll solve the problem. We'll just, we'll just make it illegal. Well, so they did that through constitutional amendment, interestingly enough, because they understood that enacting a law that deprived people of that liberty was unconstitutional. Well, it was a disaster because immediately you put out of business the legitimate alcohol dealers, uh, Schlitz, Budweiser, uh, Wild Turkey, all the bourbon people, the Scotch people. You just put them out of business because they, they can't compete. It's illegal. It's a felony. So that's what gives rise to a black market, an illegal market. So you get the Al Capone gangs, and that's what happened in Prohibition. You get these gangs that they don't compete on the basis of price or better products. They compete with violence. They kill each other off their turf battles. Well, that's what happened in the drug war. Now, notice something interesting about prohibition, that as soon as they ended prohibition, all the occupant gangs went out of business immediately because everything returns to a legal market where you got Schlitz and Budweiser and Wild Turkey or whatever. It's starting to rise up and produce these things, and the black market people can't compete in that legitimate market. So that's the only way to put a drug cartel out of business. Because if you see these narco series, you'll see that the feds go there and they concentrate, you know, in all their resources to get, let's say, the Medellin cartel, 
that it's controlling, let's say, 90% of the cocaine into the United States. And man, and, and it's true, I mean, they, these cartels get very powerful. They eliminate their enemies and so forth. So they succeed in knocking them out. And there's this great big publicity campaign and there's photographs and there's medals given out. And there's people put in the penitentiary for a hundred years. The result, five other cartels rush in to fill the void immediately or just one competing cartel. Uh, so you, you can't get rid of the cartels that way. It's just this endless process. You get rid of one, and you get five more in there to, to take their place. There's one way to get rid of them, and that's legalization. There's no other way. Mm. Uh, so that's what we advocate as libertarians. Now, now, our case is a moral case. We believe that people should be free to ingest whatever they want to ingest, no matter how harmful. You know, even if alcohol is killing people, and tobacco is killing people, and, and those two drugs kill a lot more people than heroin and cocaine and meth and marijuana and so forth, um, that even if it does, people have a right to, to, to make those bad decisions as long as they're not initiating violence or fraud against another person. Right. Uh, so that's, that's our principal case, but then there's the utilitarian case, the practical case of, look, all you're doing is producing violence in society with your drug cartels and drug gangs and your police corruption and your judicial corruption and asset forfeiture and, uh, I mean, extremely long jail sentences. It's The drug war is the most racially bigoted government programs and segregation. The penitentiaries are filled with this Jim Crow uh, program. So to me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, I, I've talked to people in my family that the drug war 30 years ago we would have family dinners and and they oh no we couldn't couldn't ever legalize drugs and so today you think they would change their mind <laughs> no right despite 30 years of failure death destruction corruption they still hope springs eternal that it's they're going to find a way to make it work yeah so this is just a little side point and then we'll, we'll start to finish up i i'm in some philosophy classes and we do talk about like utilitarianism and and all these different philosophies. And the one that I find the most interesting is um, Aristotle's virtue ethics, because a lot of people try to tie it to communitarianism. And they, they, they talk about, oh, well, benefit of the community is tied to Aristotle's belief. And he did believe community was necessary. But there's one stipulation within the philosophy that, like my professor and other people don't, really connect is the idea that in order to have virtue your intent matters as well and and like you said before taxation gets rid of virtue simply having someone take your money from you and give it to someone else doesn't mean you're virtuous doesn't mean they're virtuous or anything like that it it totally gets rid of virtue so true intent makes you a virtuous person so what i find interesting about liberty is that it it allows people to be vicious or virtuous. It shows their true colors. So it, it, it's quite interesting to see, as I'm taking these um, philosophy classes, to see how libertarianism applies to, not only to utilitarianism, but to like virtue ethics and all these different philosophies. And I, I think it's very convincing. You hit the nail on the head, man. You hit the friggin' nail on the head. I mean... <laughs> If let's assume that I accost a person at an ATM machine with a gun and say, give me $10,000 out of your account. And he does it, you know, it's either give me the 10,000 or I may kill him. 
And so I take his 10,000 and I go help, I uh, use it to help people in the, in the ghetto that are very poor. And I give part of it to an elderly woman who uh, doesn't have any source of income. I give it to somebody that needs some education, another person in healthcare. I just spread it around. Now, am I a good and caring person? I mean, I'm doing good and, and uh, I'm doing virtuous things here. I'm not using it for myself. I think 100% of people would say, Jacob, you're just nothing more than a common thief. Right. That, yeah, you're using this money for right purposes, but it's not your money. Mm-hmm. You, it's money stolen from people. Um, and you're a thief. You need to be prosecuted and convicted for this. You're a robber. Uh, well, what's really weird is how if, if instead I go to the government and I say, look, that guy at that ATM machine, impose a tax of $10,000 on him and give it to me and I'll go redistribute it. And then they do that. All of a sudden, everything changes. Oh, no, Jacob, this isn't political stealing. This is virtuous. This is care. This is compassion. It's pure nonsense. It's just as evil. It's just as immoral. And as you point out, virtue can only come from the individual. And, and, and actually through choices, when you, when you, when you, let's say the government took 99% of people's money and left them with 1%, there's not room for choice, much room for choices there, but let's turn it around and say the government only took 1% and left you with 99%. You got a lot of room for choices now. And, and through those choices, that's what produces virtue. People might choose wrongly. They may say, I don't want to help that person. But that's the exercise of conscience. Uh, all of a sudden, it starts eating at a person. Oh, maybe I should have done that and so forth. But that's how you reach virtue in a society through this constant process of choice, of decision making, and so forth. That's why I say that you don't, and, and I believe in people. You see, this is what we've lost too is that we, we think that we have to have government forcing people. This is what the so called safety net's all about. Or people get upset at me because I say, I would eliminate Social Security today. I have no problems with that. Why? Because I have no doubts that everything would work out fine. Freedom works. And, and when people are free to decide for themselves whether to honor their mother and father when they're in trouble or to have church groups help people, their neighborhood groups, I mean, you can see in this coronavirus, people helping each other. I have no question that that would happen if you immediately freed the American people to make these choices on their own. The problem is that people have lost that faith in themselves and they've lost faith in others and they've lost faith in freedom and in God. And that's what that induces them to look to Caesar, the, the coercive apparatus of the state to, to do all this looting and plundering. Right. One, one more point on that. Uh, there's this famous paper. I, I forget who wrote it, but um, it talks about whether or not you have a moral obligation to save the person drowning in the, save the little kid drowning in the ocean. Um, and it's kind of like an analogy to international aid. And it comes to a pretty convincing argument that, yes, you do have a moral obligation to do it. But then it all of a sudden connects that to saying, well, yeah, you have a moral obligation to do it. So therefore, um, government aid to international countries is moral. But it, it skips it skips the the coercion aspect of it. Like I may have. I may have a moral obligation to fund um, another country's aid. You know, I might I might have a moral obligation to save the kid in the water, but that doesn't give someone else the moral obligation to force me to save the kid in the water. So I, I, I find that interesting. 
Um, I, I find it fascinating. I mean, they, they, as you point out, they just skip that little tiny step of force. Right. That, sure, we can talk about ethical obligations and moral obligations. Thou shalt love thy mother and thy father, that, or honor thy mother and thy father. I mean, that's, that's a moral commandment from God. But does that mean that we should force people to honor mother and father? I don't think so. God vests people with free will. He, he, God trusts people with freedom. Now, we, we have to put a limit on, on that, that exercise of choice. We don't, we don't say that people have a, the freedom to go and kill somebody else or to rob somebody else because then they're, they're, they're violating their right to live their life the way they want. Mm. But there's this entire ambit of peaceful activity, and one of those is honoring mother and father. It's a moral imperative under, under Christian principles and Jewish principles. Um, but it's a far cry from that to say, we're going to force you to do this. Right. Because once you say we're going to force you to do it, you've destroyed God's gift of free will. Right. You're essentially saying God made a mistake. He should never have trusted those young people because those young people can't be trusted with freedom. And we're going to fix it by forcing them to do this. Right. And then and then we have the system of that totally forgets about God's purpose of forgiveness as well. We have the system that tries to pass judgment even though that people have free will but then they also forget the forgiveness aspect of it too so i i, I do find that interesting about like these nonviolent criminals and stuff like that but um you actually brought up another point and I, I'm, I'm sorry i keep extending this but i think uh since since we are talking about free will and the limits that we put i think on on your website you have abortion and i think that that is a very <laughs> it's it's going to strike a nerve for a lot of people. Um, and I think that this is where the principle of localism is kind of important. But I, I'm wondering what you think in regards to like the distinction between what we were talking about earlier, where there is the ideal, what we're actually striving for, which is freedom and um, states, states' rights regarding issues like abortion. Okay, well, keep in mind, first of all, in the phraseology, it's important that, that, to keep in mind that states don't have rights. Only okay. people have rights. States have powers. Um, I know we use that term, but it's really a, an inappropriate term because uh, only people have rights. Um, but on the abortion issue, okay, I'm a Catholic, and I believe that, therefore, that life begins at conception. Now, that means necessarily for me that the, the role of government is to protect people from the initiation of force of others. I mean, I believe the state plays a very legitimate role. I think it's one of the purposes of government to go after murderers, rapists, thieves, target the violent people in society or the people that are defrauding people and, and prosecute them, provide them due process of law, trial by jury, all the civil liberties. And if they're convicted, punish them. Uh, and and that's, that way you keep the peaceful law-abiding people and exercising their nice, peaceful uh, society. We're living in their nice, peaceful society. Well, if you believe that life begins at conception, which I do, then the, the state has a role in protecting that person's life, just as if the person were just born. I mean, for us, there's, there's no difference between a baby that's been out of the womb for five minutes and a, and, and a baby at, at conception, it, it's just, it's, it's all the same. I mean, I, I think everybody would agree that if a baby's born and five minutes later, somebody kills it, uh, kills him or her, 
that that's murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so we, we Catholics consider it the same thing. Now, so, you know, but I don't want the federal government in there um, you know, in charge of this murder case because I don't think the federal government should be involved in murder cases. I, that's part of that decentralization we were talking about. I mean, I, I don't even favor the FBI because of look what it look what it's done. I mean, in a theoretical sense, the FBI, you could say, oh, well, Jacob, it's protecting us from murders, rapists and thieves and so forth. Well, but when you have that massive centralization of power, they spy on people, they they blackmail people, they, they uh, keep secret files on people. I mean, so I would prefer all criminal justice to be at the state and local level. Well, OK, so that brings up how effective is that? Well, I don't I don't believe it's very effective at all. I, I, I did, my goal is to see a reduction in the number of abortions. Would um, the criminalization of this at the state level of abortion achieve that? I'm not convinced of it. Uh, that you know, one state criminalizes it, women can go to another state, you know, assuming they have the money to get in a car and pay the gas and go to another state where the abortion can be done. They can do it there. They can bring out the coat hanger again and, and go there. Uh, so. I really think that the ultimate solution is from my standpoint. I mean, I know there's some people that say abortion is no big deal. It's, it's, it's uh, so what and so forth. But I believe that there's life here. And my objective is how do you get less abortions? And I think it's an educational process. I mean, there's counseling groups. Uh, there's, in the Catholic Church, there's one called Gabriel something or other, um, where they counsel young women that are pregnant and they try to persuade them to, to go to term with their baby. And part of this is economics, too. You know, there's, there's got to be a sector of, of women that say, I can't afford this. Mm-hmm. They, they get pregnant, maybe they're not married, uh, and they say, I just can't afford this. Well, so there's that, that perfect storm over here where you've got this economic system, this dysfunctional system that has impoverished people where they're living paycheck to paycheck. While if you had a a bustling dynamic system where people had a year worth of savings that might induce a, a young woman to say yeah i can handle this at least those that do it for economic reasons mm-hmm. uh, so I, I think it's more how do you raise people's consciousness to a higher level to not um, to not go this route mm-hmm. but i think going the criminal justice route where you're really going to punish people after the fact right. I mean, you haven't protected the baby at all the baby's gone uh, when you prosecute somebody for an abortion. Um, and so what good is that? Uh, now, is there a deterrent effect? Well, maybe, but I, I'm very skeptical. Yeah. Just to kind of finish up here, have you seen, uh, you've won a few primaries within the Libertarian Party. Can you, how, how are you doing? <laughs> Do you see that you have a chance? Yeah, we're, we're doing very well. You know, when I, when I got into this race, I, I was, I was concerned. I mean, I, I, I knew I had, had a really uphill battle because, you know, I'd been traveling around the, the state conventions last year, um, giving talks, and the title of my talk was Adhering to Principle is Everything. And because I believe that. I, I, I mean, the Libertarian Party is the party of principle, and, and I served three terms on the platform committee in the 90s, and, and, I, and I believe that most heartily that principles are everything. They're our greatest asset, and they are the, the only solution to the crises that Democrats and Republicans have foisted on our land. Um, well, when I got into this race, I knew that there was a lot of people that, you know, wanted to water down the message, the libertarian principles, run what I call a Republican-like campaign. 
Now, I will always vote libertarian. Every time I go in that booth, I'll check off the libertarian. But I don't get excited about Republican-like campaigns or Democrat-like campaigns. And, and I saw this on the platform committee where there was people saying, oh, we've got to you know, hide our positions. We have to water down our positions to get votes. And my position was, that's ridiculous. We're trying to achieve liberty. That's the goal of this party. It's the goal of this movement. If you become a Republican light and you just advocate reform to get votes, what have you accomplished? And so, uh, so when I got when I announced, I, I told the South Carolina Libertarian Party, I said, "This is what I stand for, I'm, and I'm going to be presenting a, a a campaign of principle for the party of principle." That's that's my slogan here. And so, but I said, I know I have an uphill battle here uh, because I just wasn't sure how many people would respond. And and I remember going to these some of these conventions last year, and young people that had been in the party, let's say, 10 years, it was clear they had never heard anything like this before. I mean, their eyes were this wide. I mean, they were accustomed to health savings accounts and vouchers and reform the CIA and selective interventionism. And here this principal case for liberty comes along and their eyes were as wide as saucers. <laughs> it was really, really funny. They had never heard it. Well, so I thought, okay, I got my work cut out book for me. But what I'm finding is that this message is resonating, and it's resonating big time. I mean, how many people have come up to me saying, Jacob, thank you. Thank you for presenting this message. This is what we need in this party at this time. And I got endorsed by a fantastic caucus within the party called the Mises Caucus, named after Ludwig von Mises, which has been fantastic. Um, and so... It's, it's, it's just been really wonderful because I can tell we're hitting some chords here. So we, we, um, we win the Iowa caucuses. Now I got a great campaign team too. I got the best campaign manager in the party and maybe in the country, a guy named Jake Porter out of the Iowa Libertarian Party. And he came up with just a brilliant campaign on how to win the Iowa caucuses. And so we won those and then we won the, the Minnesota caucuses. We won the two of the Super Tuesday primaries and came in second and a third. We won California and North Carolina, came in second in Massachusetts. And then we won straw polls. We won straw polls in California, Florida. We tied for first in Montana, uh, first in Arkansas. And I, I think one other, I'm not sure, second in, in Alabama. Uh, so yeah, we're kind of on a roll. And, and unfortunately, this darn coronavirus comes along because Liam, I'm having the time of my life. I mean, I just can't tell you what an energizing experience this has been. I've been going to two or three conventions a, a weekend. I, you know, just 10 days ago, I was in Illinois and then over to Virginia and then to Maryland in one weekend. And then everything gets shut down. I mean, it's just convention after convention, cancel, 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 cancel. And all the way to about mid-April, the, the Texas Libertarian Party State Convention is still scheduled, but who knows. Right. But how frustrating because you see we, we i debated on the massachusetts libertarian party online last sunday wow. and everything was online and it was fantastic they ran it like clockwork really professional all of us were there on the screen uh and it was moderated and, and people voted uh, and it was really well done but what i miss is you don't have the crowd the energy of the crowd right. To, to pump you up as you're making your points. You're kind of like just making your point to a computer screen. <laughs> so, so where do things go from here? I mean, as you know, no, no, no delegates are binding them. Everybody mm -hmm. goes to the convention free to vote for whoever they want. So 
you know, people say, oh, you're the front runner. I really am not the front runner because nobody's bound. I mean, we're fighting like like we're at, at the bottom of this totem pole because we still got two more months and anything can happen in those two months. Right. Um, do you think, because uh, with, with Gary Johnson's campaign, it, it almost took the media to kind of push him to the national stage, you know, is uh, you, you appeared on quite a bit of, on your website, you have a bunch of appearances listed. Do you, are people reaching out to you? To a certain extent, uh, not not in the mainstream media so much. I mean, I, I ran an active campaign in the North Carolina primary, and we got coverage there. Um, a black newspaper reporter for a newspaper there called the Carolinian, which is a black-owned newspaper, and they orient toward the black community. Uh, he came out and, and wrote an entire article on my campaign and said that he was he was considering voting for me and he was uh, asking his readers to do the same thing and and then Hispanic newspaper there they conducted a one hour interview with me in Spanish and they did a full spread on the interview. Wow. So yeah, to to a certain extent, yes, but most of it is just intra party, you know, podcasts that we're doing now. We're we're now reorienting to doing stuff online. And a lot of this is the podcast. I mean, it's, it's a big industry, as you know. And uh, but the the mainstream media, there, there's always a spate of publicity after you get the nomination. Right. And it's a, it's a matter of how do you capitalize on that uh, in, in order to to springboard it to others. Right. And and my position is you do that by principles. Because if all you do is try to make yourself a lighter version of Donald Trump or a lighter version of, of Joe Biden, you're not going to get anywhere. But you go there and you say libertarians want to do things completely opposite from these people. We want to dismantle these programs, this crony capitalism, this thievery called stimulus and this thievery called and, uh, uh, you know socialism or the, the immigration controls. That's what gets people attention, that, uh, and that's what got pe this Hispanic newspaper's attention in North Carolina. And this is what I keep, you know, telling libertarians is that our principles really do. It's an extreme philosophy. It's a radical philosophy, but it's a beautiful philosophy. But if you adhere to that radicalism, that will generate your publicity. When I walked into the Hispanic newspaper in North Carolina, the, the lady comes out, and I could tell they're very busy. And, and she didn't know me from Adam, and, and I just introduced myself. I said, I'm a Libertarian Party presidential uh, nomin I mean, candidate for the nomination. And uh, I said, I'd just like you to know my position on immigration, because I knew I'd, I had a short window to get her attention. And I said, um, you know, quiero abrir las fronteras, fronteras abiertas totalmente. And she, she was shocked. She said, you really think open borders? Uh, really? I said, absolutely. No question. It's the only solution. She says, come into, come into my conference room. Uh, and, and then she calls her, her publisher, two women, and the publisher comes in and says, tell her what you just told me. And I said, open the borders. There's no other solution. Just abolish ICE, abolish it, all this junk. You know? They said, can you come back for an inter formal interview? <laughs> well, you, you couldn't do that if you walked in there and said, well, I want to keep the system intact, but I want to let in more immigrants. Right. Uh, it wouldn't work. So I think that, that whoever gets this nomination, the, that adhering to that radical purity of libertarianism is a much better chance to get mainstream media attention, even if they attack you. 
which is fine by me. I mean, I can defend libertarianism upside and down the other. Uh, hit me wherever you want, and, and I'm ready to defend. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, to take something positive from all of this, like, if, if you do win the nomination, with the crisis that we're having right now, I think it's perfect opportunity. I really do. Um, so one last thing, just for my own entertainment, I see... I see the Kennedy autopsy on your shelf back there. When you, uh, if you were to become president, would you release what happened? Would that be one of the first things that you're interested in, looking at the the secrets and all that stuff? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's there's files that are still secret, massive files that were supposed to be released at, in the early part of of uh, Trump's term. And this was by law. This is how this thing came about, that there were always people questioning the official version, that a lone nut killed the president, even though he had no motive, uh, but that, and then a, a guy that you know, supposedly had no ties to the mafia that was grieving goes and kills the lone nut. And end of story, shut down, let's move on, there's nothing to see here, folks. Well, people started questioning it, and, and there were a lot of anom anomalies and mysteries and so forth. Well, in 1992 or 91, somewhere in there, Oliver Stone comes out with his movie, JFK, that posits that this was a regime change operation carried out by the national security establishment. Uh, no different in principle from the regime change operations in Guatemala in 53 and 54, Iran in 53, uh, Cuba, early 60s, Chile, 73, that Kennedy posed a grave threat to national security because he was going to end the Cold War. He was going to pull the rug out from the national security establishment. Well, in, right after that, at the end of that movie, there's a little blurb that says they're still keeping all their records sacred, or most of their records, the CIA, the Pentagon, the Secret Service, the FBI, and, and people got outraged. They didn't know this. I didn't know it until I saw that movie. And so this, all this outrage most motivated Congress to enact the JFK Records Collection Act, which mandated the release of all the JFK-related records. Now, of course, remember the CIA was saying, oh, national security, national security. Well, they said bull. So they brought into existence a, a, an agency called the Assassination Records Review Board to enforce this act. And they got the, the release of... of thousands of documents over the objections of the Pentagon and the CIA and stuff. And that's where the floodgates were open. I mean, that's when people started figuring out what happened here. And especially with respect to the autopsy. Now, you're referring to my book, the, the, I have the Kennedy autopsy, and then I recently came out with the Kennedy autopsy too. And the, when people started figuring out all the, the weird stuff, the crooked stuff, the corrupt stuff with the autopsy, they were able to figure out in a backward sort of way why and how the assassination took place and how it was a regime change operation. Because we've heard all these theories of what happened in the assassination. Um, you know, the mafia did it, Castro did it, the Soviets did it. But one thing's clear. Only one, per one group managed that autopsy, and that was the Pentagon. There's no other group. And so when, once you realize that the autopsy's crooked, that sort of opens up what, what happened in the assassination. I mean, why do you have a crooked autopsy? So 
they mandated the release of all these records, and the ARRB got a lot of them released. But somebody inserted a little provision in that law that says, well, they can withhold certain documents for 25 years. Okay, and certain documents was tens of thousands of documents of records. And many of these relate to Mexico City, which they shut down immediately. You know, Oswald had gone to Mexico City before the assassination, and there's always all this weird stuff down there, you know, where he, they, they don't have any photographs. They say their camera was missing. They, the photograph they did come up with wasn't of Oswald. I mean, really bizarre stuff. So, okay, so 25 years, they got plenty of time. They don't have to worry, you know. Well, until 1990, I mean, 2018, uh, 20, let's see, 2016 comes along because the records had to be released in 2017, I think. And, and this was by law. It was going to be an automatic thing. The National Archives even announced, we are ready. We are getting all these things ready for the automatic release. And President Trump himself, all the way up to the week of the deadline, says, well, we're going to release these things. We're going to release these things. On the very day of the deadline, somehow or another, the CIA gets Trump to rescind that order. And he, wow. he, he released a few but said, well, I'm going to give him another... I don't know, three-year extension or something like that. Well, <laughs> if I were in office, those records would be released yesterday. I mean, the notion that 60, 70-year records, I don't know what the exact number of decades it is since 63, that they that they pose a threat to national security is a joke. Yeah. It's an absolute joke. But do they pose a threat to the CIA and the national security state? No doubt in my mind. And I think, they are covering up something big time. And I think that that's clear in that it has been that long. If the only threat that it poses towards national security is that the information could turn on the country. I mean, it could turn on those agencies. That's the only threat. Exactly. And that's what they consider a threat to national security. Right. That if you harm the CIA by showing that they they were involved in this regime change operation that entailed the assassination of John F. Kennedy, in their mind, that hurts national security. Right. <laughs> well, I think what it does is it, it makes people understand why this should never have been a national security state in the first place. Mm -hmm. it, I think it's the worst mistake in U.S. history to convert the federal government to a national security state after World War II. This is a, this is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. North Korea is a national security state. Iran, Russia, Cuba, and post-World War II U.S., Egypt. We started out as a limited government republic, and that's what they changed after World War II. And for me, I say get rid of the national security state structure and restore a limited government republic with a basic military force. Eisenhower pointed this out. You know, th this is the irony that just as, as he's leaving office, his farewell address, he, he tells the nation and the new president that the military-industrial complex poses a grave threat to our liberties and democratic processes. And unfortunately, John F. Kennedy learned the truthfulness of Eisenhower's warning. When I was researching John F. Kennedy, because, I mean, I remember when, when those papers were being released, it, uh, John F. Kennedy's talking about secret societies. Is he, is he talking about the CIA and the NSA, or is he talking about something completely different? I'm not sure. Okay. Um, it could be. Oh, oh, one thing's for certain is that there's two stages in Kennedy's life as, as president. 
he comes in as your standard cold warrior that that we need the the cia the pentagon the communists are coming to get us a communist uh, cuba is a dagger pointed at america's neck and so he buys into this whole cold war syndrome um and as most people did, I mean, that they, they, I mean, they did a number on the Americans about communism and the Soviet Union, which ironically had been the, America's World War II partner and ally against the, against the Nazi regime. Um, but after the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy clearly achieves a breakthrough through the indoctrination, just like we libertarians have achieved the breakthrough on freedom. I mean, we know we don't live in a free society. Our average, the average American, still thinks he does. Uh, that. What we've done is we've broken through the indoctrination that we received that said, hey, Americans live in a free society. Well, he achieved that breakthrough with respect to the Cold War. He realized that this was a crock, that, that, that it, was, it was a racket that the, that the national security establishment had pulled over on the American people, and that all they was doing was getting us closer to nuclear war and generating massive profits for the so-called defense industry magnifying the power of the CIA, the NSA, the, the Pentagon. And so in his famous speech at American University in June of 63, which is online, is one of the a beautiful speech. I recommend it to everybody. It's one of the best speeches by a president ever. In fact, it was broadcast all across the Soviet Union, the first time that had ever been done. And in that speech, he says, and it was a slap in the face at the Pentagon. He didn't consult with the Pentagon or any of his military advisors or CIA advisors. And he was already in a fight with the CIA because of, of what they pulled on him at the Bay of Pigs. But he gets up there and he says, enough, the Cold War is over. We're not doing this anymore. Uh, and, uh, and then he starts secret negotiations with Nikita Khrushchev, the premier of, of Russia. He, he sends an emissary to Castro uh, who ironically was there having lunch with Castro at the time of the assassination. But this was anathema to the national security state. I mean, they really believed that con the communists were coming to get us and that Kennedy was a weak sister, a traitor, that he had betrayed the, the men at the Bay of Pigs, that he had been taken to the cleaners by the Soviets at, at the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they were fuming. I mean, there was a real war. We Another book we've published called it's called JFK's War with the National Security Establishment, Why He Was Assassinated by Douglas Horn, who served on the ARRB in the 1990s. Wow. Uh, fantastic wow. book. It shows what was going on between Kennedy and the national security state. Massive war under the radar screen. Mm -hmm. And they won it. They, they, they ended up finishing them off. And he knew, and I don't know whether he was referring to secret societies there, but there is uh, what, what he was referring to there, but there is no doubt that he understood the danger that he was taking on by taking on the national security state. Right, and I think I think your position could actually, I, since the Snowden papers, um, I don't think that you can really talk to anyone who likes the CIA or NSA. I ha I actually have another interview with um, Greg Miller from the Washington Post. He he broke a story um, about. The, he, it's titled the greatest coup in American history and it has it has to do with um, this private company that the CIA secretly owned out of uh, um, Switzerland I believe and they would spy on countries like Iran um, Saudi Arabia through these encryption devices and he broke that story but he's also um, 
he also won a Pulitzer Prize for handling the paper, uh, Snowden's papers, when he leaked them to different agencies. And you can just tell, I think, I think Democrats, I think Republicans, or at least ones that are actually liberty-minded, they understand that NSA and the CIA, it's, they pose a grave threat to Americans' liberties. So I really appreciate that you've, you've written those books. Well, thank you. Yeah, my position is that, again, remember I told you that I wanted people to debate, discuss two questions. What does it mean to be free? What is the role of government in a, in a society? My position is that no one can be considered free who lives under a national security state form of governmental structure. It's just impossible. That I mean, look at the kind of government we live under. It has the power to assassinate us as Americans, not just they're, they're assassinating people overseas, like that Iranian general, which is just murder. That's all it is. Donald Trump just murdered this guy. There's no war between the United States and Iran. Uh, but what's important to keep in mind is that Trump's got the power to assassinate any one of us mm-hmm. without going to trial, without getting impeached, because the federal courts have said, yeah, presidents and his military and the CIA now have the power to assassinate Americans, too, and to take us into custody and put us in military dungeons and detention camps, torture us. And all fully supported and confirmed by the federal judiciary. And this is and spy on us, surveil us, monitor our emails, our, our internet visits, and so forth. This is, there's no way to reconcile this with a free society. There's none. If, if the Nazi regime did these kind of things, and they did, we would say, oh, wow, tyranny, massive tyranny. But when the U.S. government does it, oh, no, Jacob is keeping us safe. Well, it's no different. It's destruction of liberty in society and these people have made life very bad for us that's why we have a terrorist threat because they've gone abroad and, and thousands of miles away from american shores you know nobody's invading the united states what are they doing over there well they're they're generating anger and hatred that manifests itself with terrorist blowback and then they say oh we have to keep you safe from these threats we're producing for you overseas and we have the tsa and the homeland security and the secret fisa courts and guantanamo bay and people go along with this right. because they're afraid and that, that fear is the corn of the realm in a national security state right. i say dismantle it all restore a limited government republic and a basic military force right it reminds me of that uh the ron paul moment or the giuliani moment where he says that it's blowback and that was the end of his campaign unfortunately i think no 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 you don't, don't think say so? that, that it, it actually was the exact opposite see okay so this is what actually happened so they're, they're, they're up there debating. This was in the 2008 race, and he's in the Republican primary, national television, and they bring up this thing of, of uh, you know, the terrorists coming to, to do these things, sort of like they, they were treating terrorism like a virus. Right. That, oh, well, the virus is a worldwide phenomenon. It's finally come to America. And Ron Paul says, no. <laughs> the reason they came over to kill us is because we, namely the federal government, we're over there killing them. Right. And that was the case. I mean, the U.S. intervened in the Persian Gulf War. Then they had this massive sanctions on Iraq that contributed to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children. You had uh, Madeleine Albright, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She was asked by 60 Minutes whether the deaths of half a million Iraqi children were worth doing the sanctions. And she says, well, it's a tough issue, but yeah. So all this anger is erupting in the Middle East that manifests itself in terrorist blowback. So I'm watching this debate. <laughs> and and, I'm, and I, I said, Ron, I said to myself, I said, Ron, you heroic guy. 
I mean, uh, and I, I use a different phrase, but I said, man, I, I mean, it's like, this guy's just a giant in my, in my way of thinking as a libertarian. But I said, you are dead meat. Your campaign is over. Right. Well, and he thought so too. <laughs> well, that's when his campaign actually took off. Really? Because he, yeah, because people, a large segment of society that was watching knew that this guy was telling the truth. And it was the first time that a public official on the pub, public stage had told the truth on national television that this was blowback from U.S. foreign policy. And man, that's when people in mass started coming to Ron Paul. And that's when they got really scared because they realized that he was causing people to wake up. Interesting. Had, yeah, it was fascinating. I think I think uh, the reason that I thought that was because... Uh, and, and now I'm reconsidering the crowd's response, but I'm, I'm assuming they were all Giuliani's donors and all that stuff. Um, so, because the crowd's response to Ron Paul was like, it, it sounded like he was done. Because, I mean, I'm not old enough to remember the campaign, but I've watched it over YouTube. But I do know that um, it, it's interesting. I He received more funding from soldiers than any other Republican candidate. And I believe... Tulsi Gabbard is actually out of all the Democrats received most funding um, from soldiers as well. So it's it's interesting what the anti-war position can do. Oh no, you're absolutely right. That at that debate, it was your standard Republican mainstream audience. They were all Republicans, and they're all interventionists, just just like they are today. Uh, just like the Democratic Party uh, is. I mean, they're both peas two peas in a pod. I consider them one party, uh, the welfare warfare party divided into two wings, the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, look how the Democrats treated Tulsi Gabbard. And uh, I mean, even Hillary Clinton had to be summoned in to, to smash this woman to smithereens and smear her by saying she's a Republican, she's an agent of Russia and you know, the Russia bugaboo again. And, and, but they had to smash her because she's over there talking about regime change operations foreign interventionism. I mean, they had to get rid of this woman come hell or high water. And that's why they brought Hillary in to, to help do the smashing. Um, and and that it, so the Republican Party is now the party of empire intervention and, and, uh, and warmongering, death, suffering, destruction, sanctions, embargoes. Well, that's the Republican Party too. They're, they're, they both are on the same page. So when in that debate, that was your standard Republican Party. And it wasn't just Giuliani. It was all of the presidential candidates that were on the stage at that same time. They all attacked Ron. It wasn't just Giuliani. They all went after him and said, you're blaming America for the 9-11 attacks. You know, I dare you blame America. You're saying we caused these attacks and stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. all Ron was saying was, it's not a question of blaming anybody. It's, just, it's cause and effect. Right. That you're, you're saying if you go abroad and you start killing people and maiming them and bombing wedding parties, people are going to get angry right. and they're going to retaliate. And that's all Ron was saying is this is what motivated them to do that. And well, in, in their eyes, motive meant that, you, that that means you hate America. You know, it was, it was ridiculous. I mean, a prosecutor in a criminal case points to motive. That doesn't mean that he's defending the person. He's saying this is what motivates the person. And that's what Ron was doing. They did not want to hear that. They wanted to say, oh, no, these terrorists came because they hated America for its freedom and values. 
because they were getting ready to double down with their invasion of Iraq and their invasion of Afghanistan. How could they do that if people figure out that it's that interventionism that produced 9-11, that right. motivated 9-11? They had to, t to smash Ron or try to smash him so that they could then carry on with their invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and, and what they're doing today, all the same standard interventionism. Right, and it's not, it's not like Ron was just assuming that that was the reason. He actually was reading from Osama bin Laden's paper to America that said that that was the reason that they attacked. I mean, it's clear. Right. I mean, if you look at the, what they call a fatwa from Osama bin Laden, he, he cites these things, the, the killing of the Iraqi children with the sanctions, and then they had the stationed American troops near Islamic holy lands. I mean, if you want to provoke Muslims, go and put some what they call infidel troops right on their holy lands. You got the unconditional support of the Israeli government, which is sure to anger people in that part of the world. And uh, I mean, if, if you go back to like the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center, which is no different principle from the ones on 9-11, and there, there was a guy named, uh, uh, what was his name? Okay, it's, it escapes me for a minute. It'll, it might come back. But there's a guy, there was a, one of the terrorists in, in the 1993 attack, they finally find him in Pakistan. And they, they take him into custody and they bring him to the United States for trial. And so he's in federal court. He's being prosecuted as a terrorist, which is, that's what terrorism is. It is. It's a criminal offense. It's not an act of war. That's why he's in federal court. As at his sentencing hearing, he tells the federal judge, I mean, you, you can read his sentencing hearing, the transcript, and it is clear this guy is filled with rage. I mean, just rage. And he said, look, you call me a terrorist, but look at what you are. You are butchers. Look what you've done to these children in Iraq. And he, and he cites the sanctions. And, and so it was clear from 93 that this, this was angering people, these sanctions and killing people and so forth, uh, that if they had just stopped that, and we were saying this at the Future of Freedom Foundation, where I serve as president, and I should emphasize they don't endorse my candidacy, but we were saying before 9-11, you've got to stop this because it's going to result in a massive terrorist attack. They're going to retaliate. and But the U.S. says, no, no, we're just going to continue doing it, and so when it happens and you get another attack on the World Trade Center, all of, and of course in the Pentagon too, all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh, we had no idea this was going to happen. We're shocked. This is another day of infamy and so forth. Well, nonsense. There were people telling them that this was going to happen. There's a great book called um, Blowback by Chalmers Johnson that I highly recommend. One of the best writers in this area of empire and intervention is Chalmers Johnson. He's now deceased. But he wrote three great books, um, and they're kind of like a trilogy. And Blowback was his first one, pre-9-11, where he said the exact same thing. If you don't stop doing what you're doing in the Middle East, you're going to get a major terrorist attack on American soil. And sure enough, it happened. It's just, it's just logical. Right. Well, Jacob, if you want to tell people where they can support your campaign, if you want to tell them where you can find you on social media, please do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if they want to get a sense of what kind of work I've done for liberty, they can go to the, the website of the Future of Freedom Foundation, which, again, doesn't endorse my candidacy and 
we keep a wall of separation with the foundation and my campaign. But people can get a sense of, kind of the kind of work I've done over my life here in the libertarian movement. Uh, but to, to get involved in my campaign, see what we're doing, uh, they can go to jacobforliberty.com. Uh, keep a blog there and, and my appearances and shows like this that people can listen to or watch and upcoming appearances, which hopefully they'll start up again without too much delay. Uh, we're on Facebook at Cornberger um, 2020. We've also, I got also the best media team in the, in the world here helping me out. They're, uh, they've organized a every Tuesday night, ask me anything format where sometimes it's ask me anything, sometimes we discuss a certain issue. This Tuesday, we're gonna discuss the national security state. That's it, uh, the Revolution Report, uh, their website. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, we're, you know, I invite people to come and get involved. You can, you can volunteer on our website. Uh, you can give a donation, which we desperately need right now. We need donations, large and small. And, uh, we're running a campaign that's pretty exciting. I mean, we're having a lot of fun with it. We're having success. And that, to me, is what I want to do, Liam. I want to run, if I get this nomination, I want to run a really exciting campaign, you know, and, and where libertarians can be proud that, that they've got a candidate that's out there defending their positions soundly, with principle, showing people what we're fighting for, what, what we're involved about, why people go to these conventions, why they donate to the party and to the movement. Uh, that's what I want to do. I want to be the, the party and, and, and the movement spokesman here and tell people what we're fighting for. All right. Well, thank you, Jacob. I really appreciate you coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Liam. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> thank appreciate you. It. Yeah, thank you again.